I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, October 28th, 2014. Coming up, we take a wild ride through our digestive tract with best-selling science writer Mary Roach. The burp is a safety mechanism. If you've got the gas building up at an alarming rate, you've taken too much Alka-Seltzer or bicarbonate of soda, and you've got gas being produced too quickly for the body to deal with, the belch relieves the pressure. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. The Center for Academic Research and Training in Anthropogeny at the Salk Institute in San Diego hosted a symposium two weeks ago to apply new genetic data to its avowed goal, the investigation of the origin of humans. The contributors noted that with our reduced jaws, flat faces, and lower male aggression levels, humans are to chimps as dogs are to wolves, showing many of the physical traits that emerge during animal domestication. In the past few years, the consensus on the origin of dogs has undergone a paradigm shift. Scientists used to think that our ancestors raised wolf pups, selecting them to serve as guards and shepherds. Now, Based on behavioral, genetic, and fossil data, more believe the wolves, or rather a subset of wolves, domesticated themselves by adapting to life around humans and the benefits we humans could provide. No one set out to domesticate humans, of course, but the symposium participants outlined a set of linked behavioral and anatomical changes seen in tamed animals, like smaller jaws and reduced aggression, that we can see in ourselves. These changes may have allowed our ancestors to live in more crowded conditions and work together to advance human culture. Neuroscientists are up in arms over the new fad of brain games or cognitive improvement websites that have cropped up around the Internet. A lot of these games claim potential improvements of cognitive abilities, improved memory, and in some cases even a boost in self-confidence. Is this really the case? According to an assembly of 77 neuroscientists brought together by the Max Planck Institute for Human Development and the Stanford Center on Longevity, the answer is maybe not. According to the report published last week by the assembly, brain game sites often exaggerate benefits using supporting scientific data that is only tangentially related. Many studies have shown that exercise can be just as beneficial for cognitive flexibility. Other studies reveal identical improvement in problem-solving and spatial skills for students who played either the brain improvement games of Lumosity or the simply-for-fun video game Portal 2. However, there are still communities of scientists who support the business of brain cognition sites and continue to do research involving the technologies. Perhaps it's just a matter of time until all the data comes in. And for your science calendars, just in time for fostering hitherto undreamed of ideas for Halloween, unexpectedness. This Thursday, the Oriental Theater in Denver will host Nerd Night, a conversation on octopuses, coffee, and quantum weirdness. Doors at the Oriental Theater open at 6.30 p.m. There is a fee. More info on their website, denver.nerdnight, N-E-R-D-N-I-T-E, dot com.
You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. Best-selling author Mary Roach has been billed as Americans' funniest science writer. In Gulp, she takes readers on a journey through the Alimentary Canal, extolling the marvels of spit on the beginning end, then moving on to the man who had a hole in his stomach that allowed a doctor to observe his digestion, and on. Roach even interviews a prison inmate about rectal smuggling, including how to smuggle cell phones. So get ready. Here's my conversation with Mary Roach, author of Gulp. Just put some food right in your mouth. Chew it into bits. Add fluid called saliva. And down the throat it fits. Are there any particular parts of Gulp that people say to you yuck about the most? I have my two yuck factor ones, but what do most people say? Most people, uh, surprisingly, it's not the stuff below the waist. It tends to be saliva. Saliva. People find saliva the most upsetting substance. But your description of saliva was so fascinating that it isn't just a substance for wetting our food. It does so much more. Can you rapture eloquently about saliva for a moment here? Oh, absolutely. Saliva, yeah, people tend to think of saliva as a a lubricant for moistening food so that we can swallow it. And it does that. And if it didn't do that, we really couldn't eat. So that's a big deal. That's important. But that's just the least of it. Saliva also does this miraculous service in protecting teeth. Because if you drink things that are acidic, wine, orange juice, vinegar, even cola, that's in the very low pH range, that will easily break down your tooth enamel. This is the most amazing thing. Put a drop of vinegar on your tongue or even just take a sip of wine. And if you're paying attention, this gush of saliva, you will feel it coming in like the cavalry to protect, to dilute the acid, to bring the pH to a safe range and to protect your tooth enamel. All of this going on without your conscious awareness. And there's also antibacterial properties, antiviral. It promotes healing. They've done studies where if you don't let an animal lick the wound, it heals more slowly. Mary Roach, are you saying that there's something to that phrase, we need to lick our wounds? Absolutely. Kissing a boo-boo, you know, and when you cut yourself, what do you do? Almost instinctively, you bring your the cut to your mouth. Given that there's bacteria in the mouth, you would think, oh, my God, it'll become hideously infected, but it doesn't. Human bites, uh, contrary to what the general public tends to think, oh, my God, the human mouth, it's filthy. There was a study in an emergency uh, medicine journal, only two out of 62 untreated human bites became infected. It's, so it's, saliva has a very unfair reputation as a filthy, dangerous substance. And so the next time my golden retriever wants to lick my face, I should say, thank you, please do. <laughs> Absolutely. All of those folk sayings that we have, there's something behind them that is real. Saliva has all of this restorative property. When you describe it, it's not so disgusting. It was just the chapter title, I think, that was disgusting. Spit gets a polish. Yeah, I couldn't help myself. Uh, it was sort of the, a play on spit polish. And I don't even really even know. That's, I guess, an army term for polishing your boots with spit. Spit polish, yeah. Okay, so that's one version of some of the disgusting things in Gulp. I've often thought as I look at the name of your book, Gulp, that it really does mean all of this. It's the first step to eating. But I did gulp quite often as I was reading some of the details of some of the wild things that happened when people were trying to understand our digestion and then some of the gross things people do that are surrounding digestion. So what was one of the things that surprised you the most about what we didn't used to know about digestion and had to find out? 
Well, I love the experiments. This is a historical bit, but the uh, experiments of William Beaumont, who was this enterprising army physician who really wanted to make his name in uh, experimental science. And at a certain point, he had a patient uh, who had been accidentally shot in the side, and his, there was, it blow, blew open a hole in his stomach. And Beaumont, Dr. Beaumont, realized if he put his eye right up to the hole, he could actually see what was going on in the stomach. And he began, to, well, he realized, this is my ticket to fame and fortune. I can study this man's stomach. I can publish a book, and, and we can figure out, is digestion chemical or mechanical or both? And does the, do the juices work outside the body? Does it require the body? So he did something like 30 years of experimentation on this. Uh, he was a fur trapper. He was a, a fur courier, and he was paid for his services, but would occasionally abscond and go off and uh, disappear, and Beaumont would send word to everyone he knew, could you get St. Martin back? I'll pay handsomely, and St. Martin would hold out for more money, because it really it was a seller's market. There aren't very many stomachs with an open hole. You know, Mary Roach, I had heard about Beaumont and this open hole in the stomach that was studied. That's about all I'd heard. I had not realized that to help him understand what was happening, he would take a piece of meat while it was on a string. Because there was a hole, he was able to just put it directly in the stomach. He had a little mesh bag on a silk string, and he'd put, say, raw meat or boiled meat or cabbage, and he'd put it directly through the hole into the stomach, leave it there, and he'd kind of hired the guy to be a chore boy. So the St. Martin would go around you know, chopping wood or doing his chores with a string hanging from his side, and then after an hour or two hours or three hours, Beaumont would have him come over and he'd take the bag out and make very detailed notes about what he observed and what he smelled, and and this went on and on. And uh, with that information, Beaumont was able to figure out, yes, in fact, it's a chemical process as well as mechanical. Well, that is disgusting. <laughs> and at the same time, it is very uh, scientific. And one part that's fascinating about that is that's part of how he determined that something like meat dissolves in the stomach but something like fiber doesn't dissolve as well. So those strings and those mesh bags and also the cabbage and the kale did not dissolve as readily as the meat did. Right, which is counterintuitive in a way. People tend to think of, oh, meat is very heavy. Meat and fat, that's heavy, hard to digest. But in fact, protein and fat are almost completely broken down and absorbed, whereas fiber is passed on and it's too fibrous. It's too tough for the stomach to the sodas that we drink, the muffins that we eat, the carbohydrates in them, the fats, the oils, the proteins in our meat, all of those get digested. But the fibers, whether it's the fiber in the bran muffin or the fiber in that limped piece of lettuce, that's a little harder for the stomach to deal with. Yeah, that's right. That stuff all moves on, the, on down to the, the colon. The colon is kind of our compost bin. That's where the things that we don't use, we can't break down. They go into the colon. There are bacteria that then work in, on them and break them down a little bit further. But like most compost bins, it needs to be emptied. So that's why if you eat a lot of fiber in your diet, you are quote-unquote regular. You have to empty the bin more often. The food continues traveling. The colon leads the way. You're tuned to the KGNU Science Show, How on Earth. I'm Shelley Schlender. Our guest today is Mary Roach, author of Gulp. In our next look at Gulp, Mary Roach talks about the rectum as repository. Let's listen in. There's not much left to the food you ate. It's concentrated waste. It travels to the rectum, and there it is displaced. 
I I could not believe that you had a chapter in there where you actually interviewed people who have been drug runners who have deposited throughout their bodies swallowed bags of cocaine to hide them from the airport screeners. I mean, first of all, I never knew. Yeah, there. Uh, I have a chapter on the elementary canal as criminal accomplice, and there are a couple ways to do that. You can put it in a little latex bag or the finger of a latex glove or, or a condom sometimes and swallow it, which buys you more time because it has to make its way all the way through the digestive tract. Or you can put it up the rectum. There are pros and cons to both. If you are novice and you don't wrap it well enough, the stomach juices can actually eat through the latex and you could have an overdose. You could absorb the uh, heroin or cocaine. That's a, a more dangerous way to go about it. Well, a brief pause then to sympathize with the inherent physical danger and risk of death by being a drug smuggler. But the other part is the most fascinating part, the people where it doesn't happen to kill them through overdose. And instead, if they get caught, they try to wait out the inspectors um, waiting for them to need to go find a facility. Yes, it's a battle of wills. And there are some cases where uh, the drug mule has shown extraordinary intestinal fortitude, just days and days of, of holding it in. It's, it's unbelievable how long, because there's a there's a if you if you give in you know you're you're facing a pretty stiff prison sentence so some of them have gone have gone for days but there's all these there's a they put them in a room with something there's something called the glass toilet which is a really kind of almost what it sounds like so that the personnel at the airport can see what's in there without having to put on their gloves and mess around so the glass toilet i believe it was in a german airport the inspectors everybody's waiting around to see what will happen with the glass toilet and <laughs> Meanwhile, you interviewed all of these drug runners, and the main question was, how do you keep yourself, excuse me, but how do you keep yourself from going? Yeah, I spent time, I spent an afternoon at Avenal State Prison in California, where I live, and I expected that they'd set me up with guards to speak to, but in fact, they set me up with somebody who's quite known for his uh, his abilities in, uh, it's called hooping, as in through the hoop, when you put it through the rear door. Uh, and people say, wasn't that really awkward to sit down with someone and have a conversation about his rectum and the smuggling that he does? And in fact, it's not because in prison, everyone does it. And, and if you watch the security camera footage of people in the in the family room, the guest room, they will at some point, without even breaking stride in a conversation, just reach back and, you know, put it, put it almost like putting their wallet in their back pocket. It's nothing. It's so everyday and so matter of fact and so commonly done that it was not a not as awkward a conversation as you would think. But Mary Roach, it, it appeared to me that it does take some training. I mean, if this was something you or I did, we would be running for the facilities in a moment because of the peristaltic pressures it puts on the body to eliminate what's in that location. Yes, that's right, because the rectum works via stretch receptors. So at a certain point when there's enough material in the rectum, whether it's poop or cell phones or drugs or whatever you're trying to smuggle. I, I'm going to pause for a second here and just consider what you just said. I mean, there's there's a large amount and volume of things that can be transported this way. Oh, yeah. There are even cases of inmates going into solitary confinement where you're not allowed to have reading material or a cigarette 
There was one case of someone ended up in the emergency room with a magazine, tobacco, and glasses that he had all put into his rectum because you're not allowed to bring that into solitary. So he thought, well, I'm going to bring it in this way. And when you see that on paper, you thought, why on earth? Because it was in an emergency medicine journal. I thought, why on earth would someone be putting a, a magazine, glasses, and tobacco into his rectum? But then I went to this prison and now I understand why. But anyway, it's, a, it's a, you, you, um, they do practice. They practice. They'll They'll putter around the cell with, you know, a bar of soap or whatever's handy uh, just to, to learn. And what Rodriguez, I uh, think that I called him, that's not his real name. He said, I said, how are you able to, because you, you at a certain point when you stretch the rectum, it tells the brain you need to go and it's very uncomfortable and you can override it for a while, but the urge will come back stronger and more frequently. And, and how do you deal with that? And he said, well, you know, it, it finds its place and it's practice and you get used to it. It finds its place. I, I can hear a wine steward saying that about a fine wine that, you know, you're just waiting to have be as good as possible. He sounds like a connoisseur. It finds its place. It was a lovely line. Yeah. And he was, it was very, uh, it was though we were just talking about, I don't know, car care or your pets or I don't, it was, it was not, uh, uh, it was, it didn't seem to him uh, strange. The questions I was asking didn't seem particularly strange. I think that's an example of how much we all love science. We all really do want to figure out how things work, and our bodies are a fascinating place to start. The nutrients, they get absorbed. Blood takes them away. The food continues traveling. The colon leads the way. We're listening to Mary Roach, author of Gulp, as she talks about a trip down the Alimentary Canal. And up next... The final segment for today is about food contests. Who can eat the most? Here's Mary Roach. Travels the esophagus and peristalsis brings the food into the stomach where enzymes do their thing. Another case of stretching, and you weren't stretching the truth here. You were talking about people stretching their stomachs for eating contests. Yeah which was, in a way, even more horrifying than the drug smuggling, because the drug smugglers are doing it for a monetary gain, and the eating contestant people are just doing it for a contest. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, and you had asked me, what did I find the most disgusting? And I think that, in fact, watching footage of people in eating competitions, stuffing this food down themselves, the look, this sort of blank look, the sweaty faces and the discomfort. It's very hard for me to watch that. So let's step back and just tell people what an eating contest is. It's not like the Iron Chef where you take a little delicate appetizer and you say, my eating contest preference is this wonderful thing that's just been made. How many hot dogs is it? Well, I don't know what the current record for hot dogs is, but the, in terms of pounds, the record for consuming is 18 pounds. It tends to be more in the four to eight pound range, but somebody, somebody had, yeah. Uh, cow brains is one of the, one of the, uh, can you imagine? Uh, yeah. Someone won an eating contest by eating 14 or more pounds. pounds of, of cow brain, of cow brains. Yeah. Of cow brains. Yeah. Of cow brains. I think that most people would want a gold ribbon just for eating one bite. I think so. I think so. Yeah. So that was one that disgusted you the most, but you were fascinated by it also because it's another example of what extremes adaptability our bodies can demonstrate. 
Right. What I was amazed at is how difficult, in fact, it is to burst a human stomach. Isn't that a fascinating topic? Isn't that one most people consider? I mean, it's interesting to me what the questions are you ask, and yet they are scientific questions. Yeah, the stomach has a couple of protective mechanisms. If you start to, and, and as with the rectum, like we were just talking about, there are stretch receptors. So the stomach is keeping tabs on how full it is by, by these stretch receptors. So at a certain point, it knows, okay, this is the danger zone. We're in danger of rupturing. And the, uh, the first thing it can do is something called, scientifically, the transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxation, otherwise known as a burp. And that's a way if you're full of if you if you've got a lot of food in there, you take some say bicarbonate of soda, and this gas is produced quickly. That's actually quite dangerous. So the belch is a way to relieve the pressure and to shrink the, the stomach contents. May I ask you to say that again, in case there are any grade school children listening who want to have some way to excuse themselves in the lunchroom when that happens? What what is that called? <laughs> a transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxation, the burp. Thank you for that. Now, if you'll continue here. Yes. Well, so, yeah, the burp is a safety mechanism. If you've got the gas building up at an alarming rate, you've taken too much Alka-Seltzer or bicarbonate of soda, and you, you've got gas being produced quickly, uh, too quickly for the body to deal with. The, uh, the belch relieves the pressure. If you persist, you continue to eat, continue to put things into a dangerously full stomach, you will reflect in conscious control of. And he said, well, this is gross, but... We don't we we don't uh, override it. It happens. The food comes up and we swallow it back down because the contest rules say food can come up, but it cannot come out. So they them they are also uh, their stomachs are are uh, emptying themselves and then they 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 persist in put in swallowing it back down. So it's really an unpleasant way to make a living. That is disgusting. It is. With gastric juices added there, the stomach muscles crush. The food digestion does its work, it turns into a slush. It turns into a slush. And that's just a few of the many, many surprising and often disgusting, but still fascinating and scientific parts of Gulp. Thanks to Mary Roach, who is the best-selling author of this book about digestion, aptly named Gulp. And thanks for tuning in today. edition of How on Earth. Our executive producers are Kendra Kruger and Jane Palmer. This week's show was produced by Joel Parker and was engineered by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Warren Phillips' Digestion Song and by Psychedelic Planet. Visit our website at howonearth.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, And you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Beth Bennett.